The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. so long as we looked at last week forsaken 
and forgotten God. And they're living in their worship and their justice with the injustices that were being committed, their disobedience to the Word of God, to the law of God. Long had God been forsaken and forgotten. And He's speaking through a prophet to bring forth a word to call them back to Himself. And it is a word of severe warning of impending judgment. But it's also, as I hope we see tonight, a word of such grace and such mercy that even in their sin, uh, even in the, the day in which they forgot the Lord their God, God has not forgotten them. And God is calling them back to Himself. Let's read through the passage and then we'll walk back through it this evening. Jeremiah chapter 3, begin reading in verse 6. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot, spiritually speaking, harlotry against God, who has made covenant with them. And I said after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. Her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. And so God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Judah, you've seen what happened to Israel. Now, God brought judgment upon them because of their wickedness, and yet you went and are doing now the very same thing. So it came to pass, through her casual harlotry, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees, idolatry. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go forth and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. And have scattered your charms to alien deities, foreign deities, under every green tree, and have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. And here's a promise of redemption, of restoration, of it is to come, the, the reunion of even the, the northern and southern kingdom, the, the reunion even of all the nations gathered in Jerusalem, worshiping the one true living God. 
verse 19. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land and a beautiful heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me. O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backsliding. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of our of the Lord our God. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord, and take away the foreskin of your hearts. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Bum, bum, bum. This is a strong indictment against the people because of their sin, and yet in the severe words of judgment that is impending, we see written all over it, a call to turn to God, a call to repent, and even a promise of, of healing, a promise of restoration, of renewal for those who simply repent. For those who simply return to God. Go back to the beginning of the passage we're looking to this evening, verses 6 through 10, and what you find is that even in the day of Josiah the king, as, as he's writing this, you know about Josiah and his early life, there was a great revival. There was a great return to God. Uh, the law of God was found. There was a renewed, um, just focus, a, a mini revival in the history of Israel, so to speak. But it unfortunately was short-lived. That by the end of Josiah's life even, uh, things were not as, the people especially, were not as devoted to the Lord as they were in this little revival that occurred. And it says even there at the end of verse 10 that, that in pretense, and it says, And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. And a mere external appearance of following after the Lord, they, they had this pursuit of God that, that externally, if you looked at them, you would think they're, 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 they're right with the Lord, but their heart was not. And from their heart would would come very soon in their history 
turning back to idolatry, turning back to Baal, turning back to a, a, a disobedience to the commands of God, to the Word of God, to the law of God. And I think about this call that God gives for true repentance. And I think about our day and age, even in my lifetime, and the gospel itself of the New Testament that we so often you know, preach and proclaim and ought to always preach and proclaim, but, but unfortunately so often, even as I think back over my lifetime, I don't want to call it a half gospel, but in a sense it has been called that. What's preached sometimes is a half gospel. We get the faith part, but you never hear the word repent. You never hear the word repentance. It's something that's foreign in our modern day Christian vocabulary that God would would require of us repentance. So much so that if you were to go into the youth, I would imagine, or even here tonight with the adults and ask what is repentance, a lot of people wouldn't have a great answer. They couldn't tell me exactly what repentance really is because we don't harp on it like they used to. We don't preach on it like they used to. There's even theological confusion that abounds with with uh, is repentance a work, and if it's a, a work, then we're not saved. We're saved by grace, and if we're saved by grace, then it must just be by belief, and there's no repentance required. And and people are so confused with this repentance and faith, with with uh, things that I don't want to dive into all the muck and mire of the theological arguments on both sides. But but people get very like hot debating, arguing over. Is, is repentance a work as it is and it's not required for salvation? It's only belief. Just believe. And we just so emphasize believing and almost so so incentivized believing, honestly, is what we've done. That I fear so many have made an expression of faith, but really it's in pretense only, just like Israel. It's an external appearance of walking an aisle, of repeating a prayer, of even going through the baptismal waters, but, but it's, a, it's a false faith because it's a faith that has lacked true repentance. It's a faith that's merely interested in eternal glory and going to heaven. I mean, if I were to describe the torments of hell and the glory of heaven right now and say, if you pray this prayer, you'll go to heaven, and if you, you don't, you're going to hell, raise your hand if you want to go to heaven, of course, everybody's going to raise their hand and wants to go to heaven, but, but we can preach on heaven and preach on hell and not speak of what prevents us from going to heaven and what is the cause of us being damned to hell. And that's sin. And the need to repent. Before we dive into what repentance is from this Old Testament passage, I want to show you very simply and clearly that repentance is involved in salvation. Now go to the book of Acts real quick, and we're going to walk through a couple of passages before we jump back to Jeremiah chapter 3. All we need to do is read through the book of Acts, which traces the early uh, establishment of the New Testament church. This is the gospel being proclaimed by the apostles, by Peter, by Paul. Uh, We'll begin in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and I'm just going to read these and you can read them later to make sure I'm getting them to you in context, but I will do my best to do so. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, it says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says, repent, and then be baptized. 
All right, I'm not going to dive into that. We don't have time. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Blah, 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 blah. Repent, repent and be converted. Acts chapter 8 and verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. And so God is, or Peter, rather, here is calling them to repentance and turning to God in faith. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. And when they had heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Repentance that leads to life, that they also have received Christ, have received eternal spiritual life. Just a couple more. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. Because He has appointed a day upon which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. Acts 20 and verse 21. Two more. Acts 20 and verse 21. Let's go back a couple of verses because I like this, this testimony that's given here. You know, go back to verse 18. And when they came, when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So so the Bible over and over again is, is mentioning repentance involved in the giving of life, in the turning in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it's put pretty clearly, repentance towards God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. One more, Acts 26 and verse 20. Go back to verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared to those first in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent. They should repent, turn to God, and then do the works befitting repentance. So so repentance, even in the mind of the Apostle Paul, went hand in hand with, with faith, with belief, almost that they were synonymous, that true belief is true repentance, and true repentance is true belief. And we're going to talk about that tonight. 
I want tonight to, from Jeremiah chapter 3 and a little bit into chapter 4, try to show you from God's Word what repentance is and then what it involves, what it results in. Okay, go back to your, your Bible in Jeremiah chapter 3 and notice that you see over and over and over and over and over again a word throughout these calls of God for repentance. We see it first in verse 7, and I said after she had done all of these things, return to me. And then in verse 12, return backsliding Israel. Verse 14, return all backsliding children. And then you go down to verse 22, return you backsliding children and I will heal your backslidings. Verse 1 of chapter 4, if you will return all Israel, says the Lord, return to me. That, that repentance and returning to God are pretty synonymous here. That, that to repent is to turn. It, it is even in the Hebrew, if we were to to translate it quite literally, it, it would be a change of mind, a, a turning of one's mind from one thing to another. And so it's actually said in the Old Testament, and I believe the King James even words it this way, that God repented. God, God relented of the judgment that He was going to pour out when, when the people had turned to Him. There's a number of occasions, occasions in the Bible where God gives a word of judgment that's going to come. And unlike what Israel was doing right now, they actually took heed to the judgment, to the word of, of judgment, and they, they turned to God. They repented, and it actually says God repented of the judgment that He was going to pour out. God, what did He do? It's not that He was repenting of sin. He, he changed His mind, humanistically speaking, from our perspective. He, he altered that which He was going to do, again, from our perspective, because He's a sovereign God and knew it all along and ordained in you know, do the end from the beginning. Uh, you're going to wrap your mind around that, but you can't. Uh, but God says he, he repented of what He was going to do. He changed His mind regarding the judgment He was going to pour out. Repentance, put plainly, is a, a, a 180 degree turn, a change of mind to be going from from going one way to return, to, to, to literally be heading this way, away from God. And repentance is I'm turned and I'm now coming to God. God's call upon His people over and over and over again in their sin is that they would return, that they would repent, that they would, they would go from the one way they're going that is away from God, that is towards idolatry, that is towards wickedness, that's towards sin, and that they would return to God, to His grace, to His mercy, to His love, to His Word. What does this repentance look like? I want you to see two commands given here that really help. I don't want to call what I'm about to, to, to give to you what repentance is. It's what, what true repentance results in. Like how, how is it that one repents? How is it that one truly has a change of mind? What does that look like? What does that entail? Notice, firstly, the first command we come to, verse 13. He says, only acknowledge your iniquity. The first thing that is involved in repentance that flows out of a heart that is truly returning to the Lord is an acknowledgement of your sin. An acknowledgement that sin is sin. An acknowledgement that sin is against God. An acknowledgement that I have sinned. That I am a sinner. That what I have done is sinful in the eyes of the Lord. Go back to the verse 12. The words that 
God proclaimed, and it says, Return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord, and I will not remain angry forever. God is a God who delights in the forgiveness of sinners. He doesn't delight in destruction. He doesn't delight in condemning. He delights in forgiveness and in redemption. He's, he's calling out to them saying, I'm merciful. Will you return to me? And then he says, only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. There's a gospel presentation that does not involve acknowledging that you are a sinner worthy of hell. I've heard the gospel presented before, and it does sometimes. Some people present it, and they want to be just on the positive side of things, that God is love, and God wants you in heaven, and He's given His Son to die to get you to heaven. And it mentions a presentation that mentions nothing of sin. Uh, that, that is not the true gospel. That does not involve repentance. Repentance is coming to understand and acknowledge, I am a sinner. I have sinned against God. And my sin is worthy of damnation. It's worthy of hell. Nobody likes to be called a sinner. And we all like to justify our sin. We all like to explain away our sin. We all like to excuse it and even ignore it. I can think of my boy a few years ago a good picture of what we do with our sin is he's right when he was potty training. This wasn't last week. This was a couple of years ago. But the boy had peed in his pants again after a long time of just dealing with him on using the bathroom. And, and he came up, and, and he, he, it was obvious, okay? And I asked him, Hudson, did you pee in your pants? And he looked at me and said, no, sir. <laughs> I said, you didn't pee in your pants. You're telling me the truth. Yeah, I, I didn't, Daddy. I didn't pee in my pants. What 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 is that? <laughs> well, did, I spilled my cup uh, of water, and, and I got onto him. Of course, Hudson, are you lying to me? Yes, sir. And he starts crying, and, and it's just a picture in my mind of as I even dealt with him in that situation. It's like that is what we do before God and before everyone else all the time. We're we're covered in the filth of our sin, and we want to look somebody dead in the eye and tell them. No, I'm not. That's not a big deal. I'm not a sinner. I've I've seen it with people and, goodness, marriage, of course, comes up so often. A person mad at another church that wouldn't let them join the church because they were, they're they're, they're grown adults and they were were validating uh, living together out of wedlock. And then they were mad at the church over this because the church wouldn't let them join until they got married. And, and I'm talking to them, and I'm like, listen, that, I, we wouldn't let you join Trinity either. And they, they were like, how judgmental is that? And I'm, I'm trying to explain to them, like, it's not judgmental when God's Word defines things that are right and things that are wrong. But, like, it's, it's, there, there's things that are sinful that, that we, we're all sinners, and we don't look with a judgmental eye upon no one because it's, it's by the grace of God that we are what we are. But, but that doesn't mean, grace doesn't mean we excuse sin. And we make sin to no longer be sin. That, that's what the people of God in the Old Testament got in deep trouble doing. Is it, well, as long as we go to the temple and do these things, it's alright if we serve Baal. It's alright if we, we have this sacrifice here to this foreign deity. It's alright if we ignore God's word here and here and here, as long as we're doing this, this, and this. And they, they served the Lord in pretense, but not with their whole heart. They excused away their sin. They, they 
came up with reasonings on why it was all right that they were doing the things that they were doing. And God says, no, true repentance, a true turning to God with all of your heart will entail an acknowledgement of your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord. We won't read it tonight for sake of, of time, but turn to Psalm 51 where David, who was covering his sin and excusing his sin with Bathsheba um, until he was confronted by God through the prophet Nathan, uh, David finally acknowledges it before the Lord. I want to read, let's go ahead and read a couple of verses from there because it is so powerful. David, under the weight of finally being found out for all the wickedness that he had done, David writes these words. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. He says, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And then in verse 3 of Psalm 51, he says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. David says, I acknowledge my transgressions. He called it what it was. It was a transgression to, to, go a, to miss the mark, to go against the righteousness of God. And he says, my sin is always before me. And even though he sinned against Bathsheba, even though he sinned against Bathsheba's husband, even though he sinned against his own people and his own family and what he did there, he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. There comes a moment in your life that I hope all of you can look back upon where you fell under the conviction of, of your sin. And you acknowledged it before the Lord. And you said, God, I am a sinner. I need, I need your forgiveness. I acknowledge it before you. I confess it before you. Acknowledging your sin. Secondly, notice what God calls them to. is not a mere acknowledgement of their sin, but also a putting away a putting away of their sin, a turning from their sin. Now, it wasn't the action that brought the forgiveness. It was the heart that turned. It was repentance that then resulted in true repentance. What flows out of that is a change of action. Another definition of repentance would be a change of heart that leads to a change of action. And so it isn't the change of action. They could do these actions without having the heart behind it that would be being done in pretense, in, in an external fashion of making themselves look righteous before God. Repentance is the change of the mind, the change of the heart. But true repentance will result in a change of action. Just like James even says of faith, you, you know, faith without works is dead. You're not saved by your works, but but works is the validation that faith is genuine, that faith is real. Uh, so it is the same even of repentance, that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. If you flip one side over and it speaks of repentance, and you, you flip it to the other side, it speaks of faith. You can't really have one without the other, and true repentance slash faith equals a change of life. The works will flow from that. And so he says in Verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. So, so in other words, if they just said, Lord, we return to you, and then they continued in their idolatry, and they continued in their wickedness, would, would God look at that and say that was true repentance? 
No, we've got enough sense to look at that and say, it's easy to say something, but if you really mean what you say, the works that are done will validate it, will we'll show the genuineness of the words that were spoken. So many that have walked an aisle and said a prayer, and yet they leave unchanged because they've really not repented and believed. They, they've merely, you know, wanted to add God to their life to get a, 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 a higher power that can fulfill their dreams, uh, one that they can turn to in time of need. There, there's no real repentance of sin, no real faith in the Lord for what He did for hit them upon that cross. And they, they say a prayer, and yet they leave and they go and they just continue in the same sin, in the same mess of a life. It's not to say that true repentance doesn't mean we'll, we'll never sin again. No, those that say they are without sin are a liar and make God to be a liar. We'll still battle the battle, but we ought to battle the battle. And there ought to be a progression of, of being more and more conformed to be the image of Christ. That if you've said a prayer and you've you know, made a profession of faith and you, you go and you live just like you were living before you were saved, the Bible says over and over again, you need to examine your salvation. That maybe you're just serving the Lord in pretense, that you're saved in pretense, an external appearance of it, but your heart is still far from God. You haven't turned to Him with your whole heart. A putting away of, of the abominations in their life. A returning to the Lord that entailed following the Word of God in their lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Write that down. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. We so often confuse sorrow over sin with repentance. And the Bible speaks of two different sorrows that we can have regarding sin. One is a worldly sorrow that leads unto destruction. One is a godly sorrow that leads unto repentance. Let me read what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. He says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorrow, uh, sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And he says this, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. I have met many people who come in, often it's in a benevolent need, needing something paid for, and they have a sorrow over their sin that merely is a worldly sorrow. It's really a sorrow over the consequences of sin more than anything. You know, sin does have consequences. You enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but then the destruction of, of your choices come upon you. And when you're living a life that's filled with sin, it's often not a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. Sometimes it is. Sometimes, most times it's not. Uh, most people that are out doing the things that God says you ought not to do, they reap the consequences of that, and their life is shattered and broken, and that produces a sorrow over sin. It's a sorrow that's miserable under the consequences of sin. And, and so many people can come into even this church office throughout the week, and they, they want to be saved from the, the condemnation. Well, not from the condemnation. They want to be saved from the, the consequences of their sin. You know, they, they don't want to... They don't want to have to go through the misery they're going through, and they want you to help them under the misery that they're going through, but you talk to them about true repentance, about turning from the sin that they're doing and following the Word of God, and following what God says, they don't want nothing to do with that. 
Well, the reality is they want to keep doing what they're doing and just not have the consequences of their actions. And, and unfortunately, there's, there's so many people that have this worldly sorrow over sin that isn't, isn't true repentance, isn't true sorrow over sin that leads to eternal life, that leads to salvation. You say, what does that look like? That is a true repentance that's sorrow, uh, that's sorry not merely for the consequence that you're going through, but, but a heart that really recognizes my sin, as David wrote, is first and foremost against God. Like God who is good and gracious and loving, God who is my creator, God who is the one true living God, has, has commanded His will and His word over me, and I know it's what's best for me, and I, I have transgressed against God. I have sinned in His eyes. And, and even the eternal damnation that awaits is nothing... Uh, what I'm going through now is nothing compared to what that, that is. Like, I, I have sinned before Him. Uh, a true sorrow over sin, that sin is evil and wicked in the eyes of God, and that you have committed it, you've done it in His eyes. That is what ought to set upon your heart if you're really saved at some point in your life. As you even think back now to your salvation experience, when you would think of your testimony, like, like, was there in that moment a, a, a weight of sin upon you? I hope and pray that there was before you turned to Christ. That you realized, I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. I'm not merely a, a mediocre good person who needs to get to heaven. I'm a sinner who's worthy of hell, and I need the redemption of Christ. I need the forgiveness of God. A, a true repentant heart that acknowledges sin, and then flowing from that, put sin away in their life. That if you truly turn, if you truly repent, what will happen is you'll lead different than you were before. Your heart is different. You're not going to go do the same things, the same sins that you were doing. True repentance results in a putting away of sin, a putting away of abominations before the Lord. Two illustrations that he gives, and we'll close. One, in verse 3, he says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among the thorns. Okay, illustration, one that he gives of putting away sin, is fallow farmland. Okay, what is fallow land? That, that is land that they may have even tilled, but they never plant. They never sow seeds in it. Often it's done because they're allowing the soil to um, rest, to get nutrients back again, if it's been a soil that they planted in over and over again. And so they may even till the ground, but they never plant anything, and they leave it alone for a long period of time that they will then go back and, and plant. Now he says, break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among the thorns. That what would happen in that soil is that that the weeds and the thorns would take over. We know this in Florida. How many of you got some sand spurs in your yard? You leave a piece of land alone, and the weeds and the thorns take over. And this is the illustration that God is using of the people's hearts even, that their hearts have been, they've been unproductive and unfruitful. They've not been serving the Lord. Their lives, because of their waywardness, to the Lord are filled with thorns, are filled with weeds. God says you don't, you don't take 
the, the seed and sow it in that soil without first breaking up that soil, without first weeding it. you got to get the weeds out, the thorns out. Then you throw the seed into the soil. Then you sow. And the picture here, the meaning, is that you don't make this grand turn to God, the straight commitment before the Lord, with a heart filled with sin and disobedience. Like, it does entail you get rid of the sin. You, you put off the sin, and then you truly are turning and following the Lord. Break up the fallow ground and do not sow among the thorns. A second illustration given, verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. and Take away the foreskins of your hearts. I read more about circumcision this week than I wanted to, uh, but it was theological it was based on the Old Testament. What is circumcision? Why did God give circumcision? You go back to Genesis 12, the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. It's given in Genesis 15. Genesis 17 talks about circumcision. It was a, an external sign of the consecration, the setting apart of all that came from Abraham unto the Lord. It was the sign of this special, unique relationship that the offspring of Abraham would be the covenant people of God, that God was their God and they were His people. Circumcision was the sign of this covenant. It was done on the reproductive organs in order to symbolize even that in the, the offspring, the children of Abraham that would come, the miracle even of opening Sarah's womb, uh, even seen in the, the circumcision of, of Abraham, that God has divinely enabled this, all that would come are consecrated to the Lord, are, are His people. And any that would be born who were uncircumcised, it would be an evidence that they have gone against the covenant of God, that they have betrayed God and don't want to be His people. These Israelites to whom Jeremiah is writing were physically circumcised. That they bore the mark physically that they were of the Lord. But spiritually, they were not circumcised. And so he says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins, not physically, but spiritually, the foreskins of your hearts. To read John MacArthur's note on this, it says this surgery was to cut away flesh that could hold disease in its folds and could pass the disease on to wives. It was important for the preservation of God's people physically, but it also was a symbol of the need for the heart to be cleansed from sin's deadly disease. The really essential surgery needed to happen on the inside, where God calls for taking away fleshly things that keep the heart from being spiritually devoted to Him and from true faith in Him and His will. Jeremiah later expanded upon this theme. We're going to come across circumcision a lot in the book of Jeremiah. God sees, uh, or I'm sorry, God selected the reproductive organ as a location of the symbol for the man's need of cleansing for sin because it is the instrument most indicative of his depravity, since by it he reproduces generations of sinners. And that's as much as I'm going to go into this. <laughs> The circumcision of the heart. But God says, cut away. Cut away the sin 
the disease and the depravity and the soul plagued is your existence. If you really repent of it, if you really repent of it, your, your life is going to look different. You're going to be putting off the old man. You're going to be putting off sin in your life. You're going to be breaking up the fallow ground. You're going to be circumcising your heart unto the Lord. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind that results in a change of action. This message tonight, it's it's God's Word written a long time ago to His people, but it's God's Word that's been preserved for us tonight. And even as I evidenced to you through the New Testament, it's a New Testament command. Repent unto God and believe, have faith unto the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask tonight as we have a time of invitation, that we have a, a time of just examination in your heart and in your life privately as you reflect in light of this word, a call to repent, to say, God, is there anything in my life, any sin in my life that I need to repent of? There is the first big turn to God, so to speak. The first, the first repentance where you repent and believe upon Christ as Lord and Savior. But, but repenting and, and confession of sin is not something that we do once and then live in the perfection of our Christian you know, existence thereafter. No, there's a daily need. Father, forgive us of our sins daily, we ought to say. There's a daily need to repent and confess and be renewed in the forgiveness that's ours in Christ. If there's any sin in your life that you need to repent of, I beg you tonight, get that settled before Him. And if you're here tonight and you've never repented and believed upon Christ, repented of your sin, confessed it, acknowledged it before God, and, and called out to God to save you and turned to Christ and believed upon Him as Lord and Savior, I do so. If you need somebody to help you with that, then you come forward and I'd love to share with you how you can know for sure Christ is your Lord and Savior. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to You and Lord, I pray You would work through Your Spirit in this place tonight, that, Lord, You would convict where conviction is needed, um, that Your Spirit would, of Your loving kindness, lead us to repentance. That, Lord, we wouldn't be hardened in our sin, but that we would hear Your Word, that we would hear Your call to return, that we would turn tonight and just confess anything that needs confessed, that we would turn tonight find you're a God who is gracious and merciful, a God who forgives, who renews, who heals, who restores. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never turned to you for salvation, I pray that they would now. Lord, we thank you for who you are, that you're a God who has made forgiveness possible through Christ, who loves us that much. So thank you for him. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.